This podcast is brought to you by the Eisner-nominated Legend Comics and Coffee in Omaha, Nebraska. Hacha! All right, hi, this is Phil Hester, artist, writer, and creator of many things you've probably already forgotten about. And you're listening, against my best advice, to the two-headed nerd with Joe and Matt. Sort of break it, break it down like good. Broadcasting from the Ziggurat in Omaha, deep below the metro area, it is my pleasure to welcome you to episode 163 of THN. We're talking comics and nerd news for the week of Wednesday, May 21st. My name is Matt Baum. You can find me on the Twitter under the handle at Matt Baumstein. And when I'm not painting my fingernails black and pouting in public in tight black jeans and a Sisters of Mercy t-shirt, I'm writing the comic speculator blog for WorthPoint.com. That's oddly specific. And I'm Joe Patrick. You can find me at JoePatrick116 on the Twitter. And when I'm not dyeing my hair black, putting on black lipstick, and cutting out the fingers on my lace gloves, I'm the manager of Legend Comics and Coffee in Omaha, Nebraska. And Matt has removed the portion where it says, and the artist slash co-creator of the Untold Tales of the Two-Headed Nerd. Would you like to know why? Because it doesn't exist. That's right. why. That's why. In this week's episode, you'll hear our reviews of MPH number one and Ordinary number one. After that, we'll review 10 more of this week's new comics faster than Wolverine can travel back in time to kill our two headed grandparents during the ludicrous speed round. Then we'll retire to the THN Sanctum Sanctorum where Death's Little Sister is hosting a slam poetry jam. But instead of listening, Ugh. Joe and I will be whispering about what we'll be reading next week. And then. We'll examine the little-known history of hip-hop when we review Ed Pisker's hip-hop family tree as a part of our Take a Look. It's in a book segment. Relax, Joey. You don't have to rap on this one. Folks, dodge the bullet this month. We're celebrating International Goth Day on the show this week, so forgive us if things get a little dark and spooky. This one, this one's for you, New Mutant. It's time for us to talk about this week's big news! We got big news! The Congratulations, America. This is one of the men responsible for the film destiny of your iconic heroes. Like Ghost Rider. That's right. This week, the Script Notes podcast interviewed a panel of screenwriters in front of a live audience. Among the writers were Andrea Berloff of The Legend of Conan, Christopher Marcus and Stephen McFeely of Captain America, The Winter Soldier, and go to DC film scribe David Goyer. During the show, the hosts assigned each guest a particular hero and asked how they'd adapt them for film and television. Surprising probably no one, the panelists seemed pretty uninformed about some of the characters, but when the topic of She-Hulk came up, the conversation turned ugly. After some back and forth, Goyer said, quote, I have a theory about She-Hulk, which was created by a man, right? <laughs> And at the time, you got a in, 50-50 chance, right? <laughs> and at the time in particular, I think ninety-five percent of comic book readers were men, and certainly almost all of the comic book writers were men. So the Hulk was this classic male power fantasy. It's like most of the people reading comic books were these people like me, who are just these little kids getting the <laughs> kicked out of them every day. And so then, sure David Goyer just like took one on the chin daily, right? You know? <laughs> and so then they created She-Hulk, right? Who was still smart. I think She-Hulk is the chick that you could f if you were the Hulk. You know what I'm saying? Totally. She-Hulk she -Hulk was the extension of the male power fantasy. So it's like, if I'm going to be this geek who becomes the Hulk, then let's create a giant green porn star that only the Hulk could f Goyer's comments are indicative of someone with little or no understanding of a complex, intelligent, and powerful female character outside of is green, has breasts. What's wrong? Wait a minute. The writer went on to sh 
on the Hold Martian on. Manhunter. Are we upset about this? Essentially <laughs> calling him a character that only virgins care about. <laughs> so to sum up, one of the people primarily responsible for bringing Superman, Batman, and Wonder Woman to the screen has shown a complete lack of understanding of one iconic character and complete disdain for another while taking a shot at fans in the process. What do you think, Matt? WB Employee of the Year? On my ninth birthday, when I lost my virginity, I remember... <laughs> The moment I stopped caring about the Martian Manhunter, it was like I rolled over and the. It's 20- like you. It's like he faded like Santa Claus. <laughs> yeah. Like you. Well, I was a man suddenly. You, you know? stopped being able to see him even. I had just slept with my third grade teacher under the tornado slide, and I rolled over and I said, "Baby, I don't give no craps about the Martian Manhunter anymore. That dude's for virgins." Um, <laughs> okay. First of all, there is part of me that gets that's just tired of all of the fake shock that gets thrown around when anyone makes a comment that people deem unnecessary or rude or whatever, because we all speak off the cuff and he was speaking off the cuff. I'm not just, I'm not, I'm not going to say that I believe what he said. I accept it. Or I think it's a good thing. Dude was speaking off the cuff. And I do think he said some dumb things that more importantly demonstrate he doesn't know about these characters. I think that is the major thing here. Is what he said pig-headed and stupid? Yeah, absolutely. It's just dumb. And there's no way that they were like, hey, we need someone for the Hulk to f-. Why would they make it his cousin? You know what I mean? I agree that it's it's born out of ignorance, but it's yes. also completely sexist. Oh, it's completely like, sexist. Like, it's very problematic. It is completely sexist. Like, this is the guy that's in charge of Wonder Woman now. Right. But I will say there is a lot of outrage that gets kicked out there whenever someone makes a stupid comment like this. And truthfully, I don't think he was trying to come off as sexist as he did. I think he was speaking off the cuff and trying to be funny. Okay, I, and, and I agree backfired. with you. I agree with you there. For the record, I am saying it is sexist. It is problematic. No, yeah. I'm not defending it. Of course, of course. I'm saying I think the guy tried to make a bad joke. I agree that that's possible. And I also have sympathy for people in a position like that who right. are constantly scrutinized. Right. But that's the thing. If you know that everything you do and say is constantly scrutinized, you need to be better. I agree with that too. If you're going to put yourself in front of a microphone and we've gotten ourselves in trouble on this show, I've had people write in and be like, how dare you say that? Well, sure, Whether but ultimately would... it has no real effect on us because no. we're nobody. Right. But the point being is like, we have to be cognizant of that as well. We're putting a show on the internet. We have to think about certain things. I threw out a tweet last week saying, should I cut this joke? And people were like, yeah, I wouldn't use it. And I cut it. And you know what? I'm not going to repeat what it was because it was offensive. Was, was it, it on last week's show? Yeah. Was it funny? Yes. Was it offensive? Definitely. Was it funny only to like me and you? No, no, no. Okay. It'd be funny to a lot of people. <laughs> but also questionably offensive. Sure. I honestly think, do I think that David Goyer is like a sexist? Probably not. He's probably just made a dumb call and said something really stupid. It was a really bad decision. Yeah. He absolutely deserved to be taken to task for it. No, definitely. And the internet has really let him have it this week. In other Hollywood news, Marvel Studios and director Edgar Wright have parted ways on the Ant-Man film due to, quote, differences in their vision of the film. Marvel said that another director has already been hired and the film will hold firm to its July 17th, 2015 release date. And let me tell you, nothing builds confidence in a statement like that when you say the director's name is another director. The decision (laughs) comes as a pretty big surprise, especially considering that as of less than a month ago, Marvel Studios president Kevin 
Feige? Feige? Yes. Feige. I just want to go. Feige revealed that Wright's vision for Ant-Man altered the company's plans for the larger Marvel Cinematic Universe. Quote, we changed some of the MCU to accommodate the version of Ant-Man. Knowing what we wanted to do with Edgar and with Ant-Man, going years and years back helped to dictate what we did with the roster for the Avengers the first time. End quote. Both parties called the split amicable. But, I'm sure you agree, Joe, this is kind of a brutal bummer and scares me a little bit. It is a brutal bummer. And I had a discussion online with... Uh, our, a listener that we know, Chase Magnet, who has contributed to the answer of the week, was super upset about it and kind of reacting in the moment. You Did know, he shoot about himself. No, <laughs> about how it's. <laughs> oh Jesus, Chase! <laughs> like, does it really give reason to doubt Marvel's plans going forward, losing a director of rights caliber? And I'm paraphrasing and probably very badly. I, I don't have the the discussion in front of me. I chimed in saying that I have to give Marvel the benefit of the doubt here, though I do think it's a bummer that Edgar Wright is not going to direct this movie. I do too. I do too. I am a fan of the man, and I was really looking forward to it. But Marvel has a vision for their movies. They have a larger narrative that they're playing with, and they have a plan, and it has been finely crafted over the course of many, many films and many more to come. And much like their comics, if you don't stick to that plan... Things fall down. Right. And, and we end up screaming about it on stupid shows like this. And they have already proven that they are not afraid to make changes to better suit the ongoing right. structure of the Marvel films. Just like the comics. Specifically, I'm talking about Ed Norton when, after The Incredible Hulk, as they were gearing up for the Avengers, he wanted all of this like creative control about the Hulk and uh, a potential sequel and blah, blah, blah. And Marvel said, you know what? No, thank you. We go, have a different plan. Go away, Ed Norton. You're very hard to work with. Mark Ruffalo. <laughs> but the point is they clashed with what Marvel wanted to do with the character in the larger franchise. Right. And that took precedence over the a single, a single creator's vision. And I can see how any director might feel overwhelmed or trapped by something that big. Because this is new for movies. This is brand new. And a guy like Edgar Wright, maybe he's not used to that. I'm not defending Marvel because I don't know what happened. I would like to hear what his beef was. That's what I'd like to know. Well, I mean, this press release they put out was like issued jointly, so they both signed off on it. Yeah. And, you know, taking it at face value, it's it's good to know that they, you know, shook hands. Right. And said, well, thanks anyway, you know. And Edgar Wright. We have different ideas. I'm going to move on. Could have been as simple as him just saying, this isn't for me. Right. I don't want to make millions and millions and millions of dollars. <laughs> right. I mean, not everything is a huge blow. I'm just not interested in that much cocaine, <laughs> exotic women, and sports cars. Well, and that is the that is a problem inherent with corporately created stories. Sure. This is something that is almost universally loved, and Marvel is definitely on the right track with their stuff, and if they said it's not working, then... Yeah, it, they haven't led us astray yet, and this is... I was going to say, if this were happening at DC with one of their creators, we'd go, uh-oh, look at that. Right. But that's because... Because it would be the latest in a long string right. of There's that There's a happening. list of 20 guys. Right. This is the first time it's happened. I don't think it's a huge warning sign. It is a bummer. It was... Edgar Wright's Ant-Man would have been awesome. I, I totally agree. I think it would have been great. Finally, Marvel has announced a new event at the recent Diamond Retailer Summit in Las Vegas. 
which is annually right next door to a huge porn conference. It's not always in Las Vegas, but yeah. <laughs> which I just think is awesome. <laughs> this September, Avengers and New Avengers will jump forward in time eight months for storylines leading to Time Runs Out in May 2015. It sounds like you're missing like, <laughs> a participle. Right. <laughs> for storylines leading to Time Runs Out. Right. Marvel says that, quote, time runs out, end quote, will feature the culmination of everything writer Jonathan Hickman has been building toward. Is he going to explode after it? <laughs> I think he'll just commit suicide. Promotional images implied a definite tie to the current world incursion storyline and a potential return for Thanos and his Black Order. The publisher stated that time runs out will have an impact on the entire company causing them to do something they haven't done in their entire 75-year history. Now, pre-event hype is nothing new, but the themes of colliding alternate worlds and the fact that the story was announced in front of retailers instead of fans have many speculating that this could be something truly game-changing, like a merging of the Ultimate and 616 universes or even a complete reboot. Marvel has always denied the possibility of a reboot, but hey, things change. The publisher said that things will start to be clear in the weeks ahead, so expect big announcements this convention season. Matt, if any part of these rumors are true, do you think it's a good move for Marvel? I don't see Marvel rebooting their universe. It doesn't make sense at this point. They're already winning. They dominate sales as it is. They had like seven of the top 10 books last month. I do think the Ultimate Universe... If they're going to do something with it, they've got to merge it with the regular Marvel U. They had their chance to kill it, make Galactus look like a badass again, and destroy the Ultimate U. They dropped the ball on that one, tried to relaunch it again. When they did relaunch, books like All New Ultimates, number one, checked it in number 70 in the top 300 comics. That's pathetic. They've got to do something with the Ultimate U, and my guess is that's what's coming. Hey, man, that's like top 20%. <laughs> yep. Unfortunately, it's a terrible debut for a Marvel book. You point to numbers a lot, and I don't think that their position in the top 100 is indicative. Well, I'm a manager of a comic book store, so I can't help it. Oh, wait, that's you. Sorry. Right. <laughs> but I'm saying that Marvel's threshold for what is what they expect out of certain books is not the same. Like, because Ultimate Spider-Man does, uh, because Ultimates, rather, does not sell 40 or 50 or 60,000 copies does not necessarily mean that in their eyes it's a failure. Would they want it to do better? Yeah, I'm but they you. might expect different things. Again, I'm not disagreeing that sales are. I'm telling you, our, our sales are bad. I agree that I don't think a reboot makes any sense for Marvel. No, uh, the books coming out of Marvel now in the last couple of years have been some of the best books to come out of the top two, without a doubt, the big two publishers in years. And if anything, I can see them maybe merging Miles Morales into the mainstream Marvel universe or merging the two so that their universe as a whole is a lot more similar to the movie version. Right. Which I hate that idea. I don't particularly like it either. But if 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 it's going to be anything drastic like that, it'll be that. It's yeah. not going to be a reset button on Marvel continuity because why? There's why no reason bother? to do that. And they saw the backlash that DC got for it and they see where DC now how many books got canceled, where they are in sales now. There's no way they take that same risk. There's no point in it. It was a cool experiment. It, I'm not going to say it failed, but I will say I don't think it ended up where DC wanted it to. Sure. Well, somebody pointed out on Comics Alliance this week that, ironically, the new 52 is very close to hitting 52 
canceled titles since the reboot. Wow. <laughs> They're at like 47. Wow. Right. So re- reboots are risky. Yeah. You could say that. But considering the fact that they that Marvel has just pulled off a very successful high-profile relaunch without sacrificing their continuity, I can't imagine them making this decision. No, it doesn't make any sense. I will say I'm interested. And if it does deliver on the promise of Jonathan Hickman's crazy wheels within wheels nonsense that's been going on for years, I'm totally into it. I don't understand one f- word in New Avengers <laughs> half the time. So hopefully... Try reading it when you're stoned. It helps me a lot. There you go. That's the big news for this week. If you'd like to discuss these stories or anything you think we missed, hit us up at the THN forums where Joe Patrick is posting pics of his Susie and the Banshees phase back in the mid-1990s when he was reading Spawn comics in a corset. I looked good, too. Ooh, buddy. Every Sunday. Wait, what? That's right. Sunday. It changed. The lonely and morbid Joe Patrick posts the question of the week in our THN web forum, which you can find by clicking the link at TwoHeadedNerd.com. Joe, what do we ask the listeners? This week. This week's question, we're all going to see it. It's true. X-Men, y'all. I'm going in a couple hours. Days of Future Past. Doff. <laughs> X-Men, doff. I like that. <laughs> we want to know what you thought of X-Men, Days of Future Past. Short review. Hit us with your short review. As always, three-minute time limit on these calls. And spoilers, totally allowed. Oh, yeah. I'm calling it. I want Absolutely. all your spoilers. Ruin it. We are not... Messing around. That's right. We're not going to hold if back. If you either. haven't seen X Men by the time the answer of the week comes out, don't listen to That's it. That's right. Throw your computer away. Download it. Yep. Download it first. Don't listen. But don't listen to it. <laughs> we don't care what you do after that. <laughs> it's review time on THN, where Matt and I bust out the Ouija board and commune with two of this week's new comics. Matt, what did the spirit world think of your read this week? This week, I read MPH, number one from Image, written by Mark Miller, with art by Duncan Fergredo. Here's your solicit. Pay attention here. The all-new Miller World universe kicks into high gear with the launch of Miller and Fergredo's Fast and Furious miniseries, when a group of hard-luck teens, I want you to pay attention to that word, in Motor City stumble upon a street drug called MPH. They gain the power of super speed. Will they use it to save the world? Hell no. Not when there's dollar-dollar bills. That's really dumb, so I'm not going to read the rest of it. Anyway. Not when there's dollar-dollar bills to be had, y'all. <laughs> <laughs> the story opens in 1986 with the first case of MPH abuse as an unnamed man slides to a halt in Backwoods, Missouri after speeding through several states uncontrollably only to be hooded, arrested, and carted off by the government. From there, we flash forward to modern-day Detroit to a strip club where two not-teenage but 20-something drug dealers are meeting with the supplier to discuss a drop-off that turns out to be a setup. One of them walks with the business, the other goes off to prison, where he learns the truth of the setup and ends up getting depressed and turning to drug use. I'll let you guess what drug he turns to. Is it mpf? It is, in fact, oomph. <laughs> it just so happens the prison dealer sets him up with oomph, and all hell breaks loose. This is looking a lot less of teens on super drugs starting and more of a revenge story tied into a government conspiracy. Not that it was bad, just not what I expected. We didn't get enough of the main character here to really make me care about him, but the story, in true Miller fashion, looks to be way bigger that he's leading on with his first issue, and I am interested. 
Duncan Fregredo is just amazing as usual. And Inking himself, which really set him apart from his Dark Horse work, I kind of I had to go back and look twice at it when I realized it was him. Really great colors here by Peter Doherty, who is not Pete Doherty of the Libertines, famous for his drug and alcohol <laughs> problems and tumultuous relationships with Kate Moss and Amy Winehouse, which may or may not have murdered her. But we're not going to that. She didn't get murdered. Pete led her down a very sad and just terrible track <laughs> of self-destruction that ended in her death. R.I.P. But that's a different story. Taken too soon. This is a solid start for another Miller superpower story set in reality, but I'm not going to say it's his best effort to date. Still, good stuff. I'm giving this the strongest skimmit I can give it because you really don't need this. But if you're a big fan of Miller, you'll dig it. We don't need any of it. That's not true. Some We've of it had I, this argument. I f- need some of it. Your comments are based around the solicit and how it's different from what they advertise, but this issue had multiple variant covers with other characters that have yet to be introduced. So I think that when the story ramps up, it's going to be more like what they're talking about in the solicit. Probably. It's going to be more about a group of kids that are using MPH to to make money or whatever. You know, and that could be. All I'm saying is we didn't even get a taste it's of that. Ju- in the, well, <laughs> you know? this, is, this is truly a ground floor setup. Right now, we're only seeing MPH and its effects and, and kind of how far back it stretches with these two characters, the, the man that gets black bagged and taken away. Right. And then... The two drug dealers. It's, not, it's almost not even important. They were kind of an Well, the, the, guy that gets, the guy that's... That gets set up. Right. I liked it. I liked it more, I think, than you. Uh, I mean, it's got typical Miller quirks, you know, like there's a cadence to his writing. Definitely. Which I don't dislike. I think everything that he writes is very surface level. It's yeah. it's every character is painted with a very broad stroke. And this is not different, but I kind of like the idea and yeah, right now it's this kind of revenge thing, but we're only getting started and... And I'm, again, I didn't say it was bad. No. I just think compared to the other stuff he has given us so far, this one did the least for me. That's all. Mm-hmm. I really enjoyed Jupiter's Legacy. That hit me right off the bat and I was in. This one I will probably read more of. I'm just not as excited for it. That's sure. all. I'm giving it a buy it. Okay. Just because I enjoyed it and I am kind of taken with the concept. And I am interested, genuinely intrigued to see where it goes from here. You just love drug use. Yeah, I mean... I get it. I was really sad that I couldn't come over to your butt drug party last night. We had a huge butt drugs party. Butt drugs are drugs that you put in your butt. Yeah. MPH, not one you want to put in your butt. No, that one goes in your mouth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Don't put that in your butt. <laughs> you will... Listen, you will regret Bad it. Bad news. <laughs> I liked it a little bit more than you, I think. I'm giving it a buy it. Perhaps not the most enthusiastic by it, so maybe I'm just at the A minus where you're at the B plus. I love how you know? nebulous. Our yeah, that's that's. <laughs> I, I don't think it's I don't think it's like rush right out. You know, right. Put something back on the shelf if you have to to afford MPH. It's not like that. That's what I'm saying. That's why I gave it the best skimmit I can. But get. yeah, I mean, I enjoyed it, and because I'm genuinely interested in seeing where it goes, I'm giving it a buy it. Right on, Joe Patrick. Tell us about Ordinary Number One. Ordinary, number one, is published by Titan Comics. They British. Written by Rob Williams with art and colors by Israeli. Not to be confused with Robbie Williams. No, which we have discussed on this podcast. Here's your solicit. I almost said he's the British Tom Jones, but Tom Jones is British. (laughs) 
What if everyone woke up with superpowers and it was the worst thing in the world? When a strange plague gives every human being on the planet special powers, it's seen as the next step in human evolution. But hope quickly turns to terror as every war, every terrorist attack, every crime, every simple street argument escalates to a truly horrific point. The world is tearing itself apart. Every trouble spot becomes a monstrous war zone and nuclear Armageddon looms. The plague must be cured if humankind is to survive. The key lies in the blood of the only human being who didn't get powers when the plague hit. A downtrodden, recently divorced New York plumber named Michael Fisher. The most ordinary man alive has suddenly become the most extraordinary person on planet Earth. Giant baseball players. Granny's aging in reverse. A talking grizzly bear. That's nothing out of the ordinary. That was clever. It's a great solicit. See what they did there? This is the exact same thing that you were talking about. All of this stuff that they're talking about does not happen in this book. Completely disagree. His buddy turns into a bear. There's a giant baseball player <laughs> you're, you're knocking right. the top off the Chrysler building. Yes, there's a bear and a baseball he player. He sees an old woman age in reverse right in front of him out of reality. Like, all those things happen. Those three elements happen, but all of the stuff about Earth becoming a war zone. It's a war zone. I mean, no, it's they show the president discussing that it's happening. All of that happens in this book. It's all there. He's the ordinary guy walking around. The earth has gone nuts. They show the president giving the speech, talking about I'm in contact with other world leaders, and this is happening everywhere, but don't worry. And you can see his thought bubbles on right. the television, which is awesome. And he's like, I'm totally lying. I'm scared and a guy comes up and points at the thought bubbles and the president's like, oh no! <laughs> That's great. I'm just saying that what this solicit is describing is the larger story that has not fully been delivered, which I'll, is exactly what you criticized I'll in I'll give you that, but we see the larger story we being We see some of the larger story. To we us. see some of the larger story because it's part one of three. We did not see any of the larger story from the other one, but yes, I'm not going did. into this. We did. Ordinary is a story that was originally published in Judge Dredd magazine last year, now serialized as a three-issue series from Titan. Seeing it on the rack at Legend was the first I'd heard of it, and I'm glad that I took the time to give it a read. My first exposure to Robbie Williams was the brilliant series Class War from Com.X. Disraeli is a prolific artist best known for his work on 2000 AD, and a series he created with Warren Ellis called Lazarus Churchyard. Both creators are much better known in their native England, so I wasn't sure what to expect when I picked up this issue. What I got was a fun, fast-paced story about a down-on-his-luck plumber that just can't win, even when everyone on Earth hits the super-powered jackpot. Robbie Williams' script is genuinely funny, and you instantly connect with Michael. Even if you can't relate to his romantic struggles or his money problems, the general sense that nothing ever goes right for him is something that everyone can sympathize with. He's a drunk Charlie Brown. There you go. There are a couple of weird moments, like when one of the brutish enforcers tormenting Michael feels it necessary to point out that his employer is from the South Pacific for no reason. Also, the story takes place in New York, but there's something very British about the cadence of the character's speech that makes the setting seem off. There's no reason that the story couldn't be said in London. Not that it bothered me. I just thought, like, just the way they spoke. I guess I didn't really notice that. Just the style of the writing just made me think, New York, why New York? Huh. But very small and very nitpicky. Not, it's not a, a criticism at all, just something that I noticed. Okay. The real star of the issue is Disraeli. His art is cartoonish in a way that suits the tone of the story, but he packs every panel full of detail. 
As Michael is obsessing about his personal situation in the foreground, the world is going bonkers in the background. As much as I enjoyed the line art, what really impressed me was the coloring. Disraeli employs a wide range of colors from the drab palette of Michael's personal world to the bright vibrancy of a world gone crazy to the hyper-saturated, almost surreal hues of Michael's dream. The book looks amazing. Yeah, Disraeli's so talented, it's stupid. Now, I liked this a lot. I had literally no expectations going into it and was blown away by the story that Williams and Disraeli delivered. I can't wait to see how Michael's story develops. Ordinary number one gets a huge buy it from me. Same here. I, I loved this. As soon as I put it down, I texted you and I said, this book was awesome. Yeah. It was very much like a Why the Last Man story where you guys... <laughs> Like we said, totally normal guy who unfortunately, when everybody else gets powers, stays totally normal. And it, it's just fun. It's a fun premise. It was really well written. It was wacky. It was believable. It was beautifully illustrated by a guy that is truly a legend and should be much better known. I love this book. Huge buy it. And huge props to Titan. They are coming up. Yeah, they've got a lot coming they out. They are coming up big time. They just got like the Doctor Who license. Yeah, two new two new ongoing series Doctor Who coming out. Yeah. One with David Tennant and one with Matt Smith. Good for them. Yeah, I'm excited. So that is a buy it and a skim it for MPH number one and a double buy it for ordinary number one. Of course, we want to know what you speed freaks and ordinary peeps thought. So hit us with your opinions over at the This Week's Comics section of the THN forums, which you can find by clicking the forum button at TwoHeadedNerd.com. After false rumors spread by our Twitter nemesis, Dr. Carlos Danger, hit the web, detailing Joe and I's plan to sync the new X-Men film with bad reviews because 20th Century Fox refused to pay us off, a terrified Hugh Jackman quickly launched a plan to use the Fox Time Portal. They have one. I don't know if you knew that. To travel back in time. Doesn't everyone? To go sneaky-snacked on our grandparents, thereby wiping the two-headed nerd from the present. So now, thanks to the evil doctor, Joe and I are forced to use the Flash's cosmic treadmill to follow Jackman into the past to protect our two-headed grandfather, all while we review 10 of this week's comics during the ludicrous speed round. Don't worry, Joe. I think we got... Ludicrous speed, go! Original Sin, number two from Marvel. I was thinking about how much I was not loving Mike Diodato's art in this book. But then something completely batshit crazy happened, and I remembered that I was reading a Jason Aaron comic. It's true that I don't love the art, but the story is so nuts that I can't help but be sucked in. I'm enjoying this a lot so far. Buy it. I think Diodato is doing a much more tolerable job here. I kind of like kind of digging him. Star Wars. Star Wars. Star Wars. <laughs> 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 Is it too early for a Charo Negro? No. Star Wars, Darth Maul, son of Dathomir, number one from Dark Horse. Remember the bad guy from Star Wars that episode? That title is so long. Oh, I know all the Star Wars ones are. Remember the bad guy from Star Wars episode one? Jar Jar Binks? Mm, yes, but no. Natalie Not, Portman? Yes. <laughs> Not Palpatine, but the cool one with the red face and the tattoos and horns, Darth Maul. Turns out he didn't die after becoming an anti-climax in episode one. The only problem here is I really don't give a crap about Count Doodoo or any of the other boring crap from the prequels. Count Doodoo. Don't get me wrong. This is competently written and drawn. It's just dealing with a part of the Star Wars mythos that I don't give a solitary sh about. Bringing Darth Maul back this way pangs a little too much of Boba Fett's resurrection, which I also don't care about because I thought he was a cooler character when he died in the Sarlacc pit. It's 
Oh, that's sacrilege. Whatever. And giving me a scene of a bunch of Mandalorians chanting lines from the last Starfighter when they're all standing around going, Victory or death! Victory or death! It's not doing anything for me. Skim it. The last broadcast, number one from Archaea. The marketing for this title almost had me turned off before I even read it. Lots of hip jargon like urbex and splore. Good God. But <laughs> you're not saving time doing that. No. I actually quite... No, it's really not literally no, not saving like, a single second of time. Oh, I do urbex, dude. What's that? Urban exploration. Right. Okay, you just made your job longer. You wasted time. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but really, I actually quite enjoyed it. The art by Gabriel Eumazark. Eumazark is gorgeous. And the story, while it has a lot going on, maybe too much, it has me really intrigued. It's definitely worth a look. I'm giving it a buy it. Cool. Itty Bitty Bunnies in Rainbow Pixie Candy Land, number one from Action Lab slash Danger Zone. This is the tale of two hairless drug addict vegan rabbits on a bad trip, cursing their way through a psychedelic dream world fueled by pop culture from the 1980s to today. To call this vital is definitely a stretch, but it is funny and damn near review proof. This is pure drug-fueled comic insanity starring naked rabbits with dicks. And I demand they print that <laughs> quote on the cover of the next issue. What the hell do you say about a comic that features a panel of a rabbit puking and crapping rainbows to death? It has to be a buy it, right? It's like the uh, it's like the cute and fluffy bunnies from One Crazy Summer. It's a lot like that. Yes. I admit it's Savage Steve Owens. That's right. Love that guy. Forever Evil, number seven from DC. The wait is finally over. Forever Evil is here, and it wraps up the agonizingly long story. I think it's bullshit. I thought it was supposed to last forever. Right. <laughs> the agonizingly long story of the crime syndicate's takeover of Earth. There's some genuinely interesting growth for Lex Luthor and some intriguing elements set up for future stories, but as a whole, this series was a real slog, man. What comes next has potential to be fun, but the road getting here kind of wasn't. Kind of? <laughs> kind of. Yeah. I mean, there's some stuff to like, but... Yeah. Skim it. Like, I'm saying leave it. Axe Cop, American Choppers, number one from Dark Horse. If you're going to buy one comic featuring a cop with an axe riding a T-Rex with guns for arms this week, then <laughs> look no further. It seems the Axe Cop shtick doesn't get old, and now that Nick Offerman is the voice of Axe Cop on the animated Fox show, he's all I can hear while reading the character's ridiculously macho dialogue. Although I have to say, I find it hard to believe that a kid of any age is actually writing this and not a perfectly demented adult with years of comic and pop culture reference training. I loved the Planet of the Captains here, featuring Captains Crunch, Caveman, Marvel, Planet, Hook, and America. Buy it. <laughs> Does it make me a bad person to say that I think the Axe Cop shtick has lost some of its luster? Ah, man. See, I thought so too going into it, but I love it. It was super cute when he was five, but now he's ten. I get it. And it's just like... In another couple of years, it's going to be all like real weird sex stuff. It's still totally working for when me. When his hormones take over. Oh, I can't wait. Amazing Spider-Man, number two from Marvel. Dan Slott and Humberto Ramos deliver a character moment that I've been waiting for since the end of Superior Spider-Man, and it works. As much as I enjoyed that title, I'm happy to see that the creators remember that Spider-Man is supposed to be a fun character, and that's exactly what this book is. I love it. Buy it. Pathfinder, City of Secrets, number one from Dynamite. The last time I read a Pathfinder comic by Jim Zub, I recall having a lot of fun with it. This time, not as much fun. Here we see a group of adventurers in the city trying to solve a mystery, and the whole thing just comes off as watching a group 
during the really boring part of their D&D adventure, but not actually playing. I didn't love the art much either. There was just something really sketchy about it and stiff. I only give this a skim it. This one was by Jim Zub. Yeah, and boring. Saga, number 19, from Image. This is your biannual reminder that Saga is one of the most amazing comics on the stands. Vaughn and Staples pack more heart into one issue of this book than any 10 titles do in a year. Yeah, it's just the best. And as always, Saga comes back from hiatus with a first page that you would probably not want to get caught reading in public. Buy it! Whoa. Grim Fairy Tales, Warlord of Oz, number one from Xenoscope. I'll give Xenoscope credit. They showed some real restraint here and didn't give us a panty shot until page two. Here, the cowardly lion, who's built like a WWE wrestler now, apparently, is investigating a dark force that's plaguing his people. There is plenty of skimpy outfits for Cheesecake fans, including Dorothy doing her best Daisy Duke routine. And apparently Toto is a gigantic white husky now. It's more overly dramatic Cheesecake from Zinescope with some bad pun humor tossed in. They even made like a pun based on the Firefly theme song where like a character is like, you can't take the sky from me. And I was like, what are you doing? (laughs) (laughs) It just did not come off well. I will say... Somebody is working very, very hard on these comics, and they are doing a good job writing a cohesive story with pretty good art. I just don't care at all. I have to give this a leave it. Not for craftsmanship. It's a bad story because, idea. Because why? <laughs> yeah. Why? Snort! That is your ludicrous speed round and snort! is a sound made by two nude bunnies with human genitals snorting massive amounts of white drugs, as seen in this week's issue of Itty Bitty Bunnies, number one. As a favor to our favorite skinny, pale goth friend... Hey, quiet, you jerk. Uh, uh, Death's little sister. We agreed to let her host her monthly poetry slam in the THN Sanctum Sanctorum after... How were we thinking? After the House of Mystery was mysteriously double-booked. Matt and I are sitting in the back with the crow, trying to ignore Black Alice's long and droning stream of consciousness, quote, art. It's been going on for 15 minutes. And passing the Charo Negro flask while whispering about next week's comics. Matt, give me a snort of that and tell these kids what you're reading next week. Next week, I am going to be reading Clive Barker's Nightbreed, number one, from Boom. This is written by Clive Barker and Mark Andreco, with art by Pyotr Kowalski, who drew sex, which I also really enjoy. Here's your solicit. The Nightbreed is a secret society of monsters and misfits that hide away from humans, but have been part of this world since time immemorial. This series will explore both the past and the present of this clandestine tribe, unleashing new secrets and horrors as they fight to coexist with mankind. I loved the Nightbreed movie of the 80s that came out. It was so cool. And the Clive Barker novel, Cabal, tied loosely into Hellraiser as well. It was so cool. Their god, Baphomet, was like cast out of hell and was building an army of monsters to retake his plane of hell. Oh, man. So awesome. I love Nightbreed. I can't wait for this. Really good art. Two good writers. This is going to be fun. Joe Patrick, what are you reading next week? My pick for next week is Dr. Spector. Dr. Spector. (laughs) (laughs) Every time I type it, I type it with the K in the wrong place. It's Dr. with a C, Spector with a K. There you go. Colon, Master of the Occult, number one from Dynamite Entertainment, written by Mark Wade. Love him. 
with art by Neil Edwards. Like him too. Here's just to listen. TV legend, Wall Street Wolf, internet mogul, tabloid bad boy, master metaphysicist, spiritualist, monster hunter. Dr. Adam Spector is all of these things and less. For 15 years, Spector has traveled the globe to smoke out and defeat werewolves, vampires, ghosts, and everything else that goes bump in the night. Yet his success has brought him no peace. Some part of him is missing, something he needs but can't name. But he's about to find what's missing. Dot dot dot. In an unlikely place. Dot dot dot. You got three more dots. Unlock another piece of the Gold Key universe, courtesy of Mark Wade and Neil Edwards. This sounds fun as hell. I will automatically give my pick of the week to any new Mark Wade number one. Yeah, no, that's fair. I don't blame you. I mean, don't hold me to that, but that's why I picked it. Outside of his Green Hornet, fan freaking fantastic. I actually, you know what? I think if you look back, I bet you one of us picked Mark Wade's Green Hornet number one as our pick for the next. You week. did, as yeah, a matter of so. fact. Yeah. And I don't bad. We just don't care about Green Hornet. Right. And I similarly don't care about Dr. Spectre, but I'll tell you what I have enjoyed so far, the Gold Key relaunch. It's great, man. Except for Turok, which doesn't really do anything. Oh, I still like Turok. I'm having fun with it. Turok's fine. I just don't care. But I really love you just Magnus. Don't, you don't like Native Americans. I think you hit the nail on the head. For reasons that are obvious. <laughs> yeah, obvious. Yes. <laughs> we like Native Americans. We're friends. I have had sex personally with a ton of Native Americans. You make that joke every time. It's because I can't be racist. I have sex with all races equally. Wow. Completely lost my train of thought. Oh, I love Magnus Robot Fighter. And Solar Number One was pretty good too. Magnus Robot Fighter is great. And if Mark Wade is involved in this kind of little world building thing Dynamite's doing, then I am on board. So far, it doesn't look like any of the books are connected, but I don't care. Yeah. I mean, because Turok's way in the past, Magnus way in the future. Right. But I'm into this. That didn't stop Valiant from hooking everything together, though, did it? Mm, that's so true. Yeah. Very true. Yeah. Excited. The THN Trade of the Week goes to Parker the Hunter by Richard Stark, illustrated by Darwin Cook. Here's your solicit. In 1962, Donald E. Westlake, writing under the pseudonym Richard Stark, created what would become one of the most important and enduring crime fiction series ever produced. Parker! Darwin Cook has adapted four Parker books as graphic novels so far, including the recently released Slayground. He'll be providing all new color illustrations for The Hunter, the first in a series of hardcover prose novels released in chronological order featuring Cook's art. The first book in the Parker series is the story of a man who hits New York head-on like a shotgun blast to the chest. Betrayed by the woman he loves and double-crossed by his partner in crime, Parker makes his way cross-country with only one thought burning in his mind to coldly exact his revenge and reclaim what was taken from him. Don't go watch the Jason Statham movie based on this. I kind of want to see the Jason Statham I cannot say that enough. Don't do it. (laughs) These are going to be cool as hell, reprinting all the old books with Darwin Cook art and more Darwin Cook art in any form. Absolutely. Hey, brace yourself. These are real books for real people. Real books with real words. Not as many pictures, folks. Of course, we want to know what you're pumped to read next week. So when you're done getting slammed with goth poetry, let us know over at the THN forums. There is nothing worse than an upset goth person's poetry. Let me tell you. (laughs) I believe you 100%. The only thing that stinks worse than goth poetry is the clove cigarettes that these jackasses smoke. Once a month, DJ and I sit down to review a graphic novel or trade paperback for a segment we like to call Take a Look, It's in a Book. This month, we're taking a look at Ed Piscor's The Hip Hop Family Tree from Fanagraphics Books. 
The first volume of Hip Hop Family Tree is a collection of Pisker's online comic history of hip hop from the disco years of 1975 to the first rap superstars of 1981. We should say all of these are available for free that you can find online. Are they? He puts them up for free on the web first, and then if you like what he's doing, you can buy the book. I did not know that. Yes. That is one of the reasons that this book reads kind of strangely at first, because he's writing it panel by panel for digital release. So literally, you look like at the a first web panel, comic almost. like a webcomic. You look at it, and you scroll down to read what's going next. And the pages are very much built like that. This is an oversized book. I mean, this is 11 by 17, like a legal right. like a legal sheet of paper. Basically, the story is told in stacked panels where it starts at the top and slowly moves down. And it really doesn't change from that format much. Once you get past that, because it does read a little bit like this happened here, then this happened here, then this happened here, then this happened here. But that is because of the nature of the way he's releasing the actual panels and the stories. Right now... I think he, in his, like, volume two, he's up to Public Enemy, and he's telling the story of how Chuck D put together Public Enemy. It is so friggin' cool. Now, I have to say, Piscor, I read a couple interviews with him. He ended up going with Fanagraphics, basically because Fanagraphics gave him complete freedom on this and said, do whatever you want. And they did so because he's already proven himself. He worked with Harvey Picar of American Splendor on a book called The Beats, which won a bunch of awards. It looked at the beat poets of the 1950s. It's also an amazing read. He has this very blunt storytelling style, I guess. There's no other way to put it. I think he's doing it to make this sort of read like a historical textbook, which is very cool because he's not trying to dress anything up. He's not trying to examine whether or not hip hop is good or bad or derivative or whatever. He's just looking at it at the as the birth of an art form. But it's clear that he has much love for it. Oh, he adores it. Absolutely. But I also don't think he goes into like deification of any of these characters. He's showing you some of these guys. Oh, are- no. And they absolutely, he shows the flaws as well. Right. Like some of them were straight up thugs. Yeah. Crooks. And some of them were. And some of them were black people taking advantage of other black people under the guise that they were helping. The woman that was running Sugar Hill Records, for example, she straight up became a thug. And they was, don't really get into that in this volume, though. Well, they talk about how other record labels come forward and, and uh, come to her artists and say, well, what are your deals like? And they look at each other and go, what deals are you talking about? Like, they didn't even know. And she would just sort of give them some money every once in a while and go, here's the money you made. But there was nothing on paper. There was nothing really happening. I guess that's true. That there, yeah. was a, there was a scene where it's almost like they are bullied into staying with her. Absolutely. And the Sugar Hill Gang, which was really the first rap group that blew up with Rapper's Delight, was not a collection of guys that were MCs in the scene at the time. He goes well into depth of looking at the parties that took place outdoors in New York, where they would steal electricity from the telephone poles and just like play music. And guys came out and just kind of rapped over it. Or you had a DJ who was spinning and just sort of talking while he was spinning. Grandmaster Flash being one of the first guys and how rap slowly came out of that. And then you had DJs and you had MCs. The people in the Sugar Hill gang who did Rapper's Delight 
were a bunch of nobodies. Yeah, they were just, it almost, like, it reads like they were literally just plucked off the street randomly. They were. She, the woman that was running Sugar Hill Records, put together a pre-fab no, group. No, one of them, one of them was a guy, mm-hmm. like, that fat guy with the hat. Yeah. And he was involved with But he something. wasn't an MC. He was a guy that put on parties. It's a really cool, like, I've heard this story, and I know that it's true, but I've never seen it presented like this, where you see young Africa Bombada, you see Fab Five Freddy and his graffiti crew, young Jam Master Jay. I loved seeing Run and uh, oh. and DMC as, like, little kids. It was so cool. Because this is, you know you know who they are, because it says their names, but this is still year, like, it does not get up to Run DMC in this volume. Right, they're but still But you know young. what's coming, and you're like, that's cool because yeah. those guys are going to become superstars. Cool Modi is another example. Yeah. Like with the Treacherous Three, they were in high school in this having rap battles, you know, and they were talking about how one of the members of the Furious Five had like a 10 o'clock curfew. So after his set, like his mom would show up at the club and drag him out of there. These were high school kids that were starting this new art form. And Piscor does an excellent job of showing how rap was absolutely not taken seriously. Like nobody knew what to do with it. It wasn't rock and roll. It wasn't R&B. It wasn't disco, but it used elements of all these things. So the music producers, the labels, they just didn't know how to market it. The It stayed very insular for a while with like the Sugar Hill Gang and people putting on parties and whatnot saying, this is the height of our power. This is what we're going to do. We're going to stay here inside this because this is our business model. And as you know, there's so much more that happened because of right. that when they busted out of that. But this is the very beginning of it. It's a really, really cool scene where you see Rick Rubin, a young Rick Rubin, who was kind of rich kid from the suburbs, but was heavy into music. His parents would bring him into New York and let him go to shows and stuff like that. And there's a scene where he's leaving and he's playing these tapes for his buddies. And they're like, what is this? And he's like, this is the new thing that's happening. This is rap. And he's driving, he's thinking. And he thinks to himself, this is black punk rock. And it's such a cool moment because you, you see Piscor showing how Blondie was very, very involved in bringing hip hop to the mainstream with her really, really bad like rap. Rapture. On the Rapture, where she mentions like Fab Five Freddy and stuff. And The Clash, you know, got all these different hip-hop acts to open for them on the five nights they did in New York. You know, they were instrumental in getting the Funky 4 Plus 1 on Saturday Night Live, which was like really the nation's first taste of rap music on live television. This is an amazing book. Absolutely amazing. And it is written very stream of consciousness. It does take place historically year by year, character by character, and it weaves this stuff together but he does so in just a very blunt, almost graffiti-style to- storytelling where it's just, bam, this happened. Bam, this happened. Bam, this happened. And you can tell he adores these characters. It, so much so. The, the pictures of Grandmaster Flash that he draws where he's standing behind the turntables with his head down and the lights above him and there's like this cone cutting you know, of darkness around him. <laughs> like, he looks like a superhero. It's so cool. And these guys, they didn't even know what they were doing. They were just making music with what they had, which was record players and big speakers. Yeah. It turned into rap. I I absolutely love this. And I've been reading it as he puts out 
the new ones online. I think Boing Boing is carrying carrying it. And we'll, of course, put that in our notes, a link to it so you guys can check it out. This is amazing stuff. And Ed Piscor is an incredible illustrator. He did it very, he does everything very Silver Age looking, very cartoony. Even the pages look like old school comic book pages. Well, they're colored with that kind of old style, the Bende dots, the tight little four color dots that come, that make comic books look like broader colors. And, and of course it's all, like it's all an effect because yeah. now it's Photoshop or whatever. Visually speaking, the book is stunning. It's beautiful. Uh, I can't give this a bigger buy it. Okay. So I absolutely love this. I read it and I struggled through it. Not because it's not very interesting, but because it does read to me very dry. Yes. Because like Matt said, that's not a narrative. It's it is textbook style in comic form. Yeah. Where it is this happened, then this happened, then this happened, and then because this happened, this happened, and then this person came on the scene. Reading through that, a hundred pages of that took a lot of effort, and it's a hundred very, very dense pages. Oh yeah. Like every page takes a long time to read. It's not like you breeze through it. Andre the Giant was like a 200 page book. I, I breezed through it in two hours. Right. Well, Box Brown's doing something very different. Right. But this was just a real meaty read. I enjoyed it because of the craftsmanship. Yes. But I struggled at times with getting through the material. Okay. And admittedly, I am a lot more excited about hip hop than you are. Right. I mean, I love hip hop music. I also kind of just love this like untold history. I don't care sure. what it's about. No, like I love that. I love that music. I might not be the audience for this book or I might be much more apt to read it, you know, daily or weekly online as opposed to in a huge chunk. Right. That takes me forever to get through. Okay. So you can do that. I can do that and I will. <laughs> and I'll also say that like I kept waiting for it to get to things that I knew. Like that's what I want to see. Like I've heard, you know, Grandmaster Flash I've heard of obviously and and Cool Modi and, and Curtis Blow and a lot of these guys. But I kept waiting for like, okay, now get to the stuff that happened when I was young. Like get to- Well, that'll run, be volume two. Get to run DMC, get to the Beastie Boys. You know, that's what I want. Mm -hmm. And so- I guess it did its job in that it makes me want to read what's next, but I might not read it in this format. Okay. So props to Pisker. It's a great looking book. I have to give it a skim it just because for a guy like me, I don't think I'd like to read it this way. Okay. I will tell you that I loved, like his art is wonderful. Yeah, it's incredible. And I love like there's little things like Russell Simmons, <laughs> oh, who yeah. is always, always, always drawn with his eyes pointing in opposite directions. <laughs> and he's got like this super and list. And he talks like Mike, Mike uh, What are you Tyson. doing with those garbage cans? You need to record <laughs> with my man Curtis Blow. <laughs> yeah. That's great. And I just, every time that happened, I laughed because Russell Simmons, I recognize as like this huge character in music. Oh, yeah. And he's really kind of a caricature. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, huge props to Pisker. But for me, it's a skim it because you're going to want to look at it and see if it's going to be your cup of tea before right. you plop down the money for it. If it's not, absolutely, by all means, check it out online because it is well worth your time in that. Definitely. Guy is a master. Uh, as Matt said, we'll have a link to Pisker's ongoing hip hop family tree in our show notes. But this is really a book you need to hold in your hands and judge for yourself if you want to read 
Be sure to tell us what you thought of Hip Hop Family Tree over at the THN forums. And if you want to hear the music that they actually talk about in this book, I started a playlist on Spotify called Hip Hop Family Tree. You can find it by searching my name. Next month on Take a Look, It's in a Book, Matt and I will be reading Raphael Grandpa's Mesmo Delivery Service, just recently released in hardcover format. I'm excited to read it. It's very cool. Raphael Grandpa has the best last name in comics. Yeah, I first love of that all. dude. And he's a total badass. That guy's art is amazing. Sort of break it, break it down like this. And that is it for the International Gothe Celebration episode of THN. If you thought Depeche Mode was a little too uplifting too, you can subscribe to this show on iTunes or Stitcher or TuneIn where we still need your star ratings, reviews, thumbs up, and little hearts because it helps us to connect with other potential listeners. Thank you to all of our donors, especially our newest sustaining donor, Matt Truesdell. Nice job, Truesdale. If you'd like to help keep us in black cowboy hats and purple felt creepers, I do not know what that means, you can make your donation in any amount using our dismal and lonely PayPal button at twoheadednerd.com. And if you want to become a sustaining member, it's as easy as clicking the Make This Donation Monthly box. And as little as a buck a month really does help you guys. You could be as cool as Matt Truesdale. While you're there, you can find links to all of our contact info via Twitter, YouTube, Facebook, Skype, and the Ziggurat Hotline, 402-819-4894. Using this dark and foreboding list of resources, you can hit us with your Ask a Nerd comic questions or trivia challenges. You can defend your questionable comic taste in front of the Honorable Two-Headed Judge for our Defender segment, or... You can ask us to review your self-published comic, be it printed, digital, whatever. Brian DuPont just sent us a bunch of stuff. We love it when you do. And don't forget to go sign up for the THN forums, guys. This is your little virtual piece of Ziggurat where you can discuss this week's show. Hit us with your tips for making yourself look more pale or just rap about comics. What I really need is a good recommendation for eyeliner solvent. To get all this crap off my face. Oh, I was going to say the secrets in the foundation that makes the eyeliner look darker. Remember to follow us on Twitter and like our Facebook page and watch the forums. If you want to get in on the question of the week discussion, then be sure to tune in to hear your answers on the answer of the week podcast. But if you need more two-headed nerd in your life now, get over to twoheadednerd.com and check out a Saturday morning cartoons all about Justice League by the Credible Hulk. Cool. Aaron Meyer's Ludicrous Speed Reviews. Ooh. A little tame this week for him. Oh, really? Yeah. You know, oh. not really starting any fights this angry, week. Angry, angry young man. Reviews of Godzilla. Oh, new nerd at the movies. New nerd at the movies. Two new nerd at the movies because not only did he review Godzilla. Who is he? The Credible Hulk. Oh, the Credible Hulk. But he also reviewed the recent Son of Batman direct-to-DVD animated movie. Got it. Haven't watched it yet. I also picked up JLA out of time. Look, the bottom line, tons of content. Don't miss out. There you go. Next week, it's another wild card show, which means, as of today, we have nothing planned. Yeah. Before we go, this week's shout out goes to Bob Wayne. Bob is currently DC's Senior Vice President of Sales and has served in the DC Marketing Department for years. As a former retailer, Bob has been a tremendous supporter of comic shop owners and was instrumental in pushing policies that benefited the direct market, like Tuesday Delivery, something that might seem small, but it makes a huge difference to guys like Joe Patrick, and Returnability for the launch of the new 52. He's a beloved fixture of DC's convention presence and is known for his snarky but good-natured responses to fan questions during panels. 
after nearly three decades. That's 60 years, folks. Wayne has <laughs> decided to step down from his position at DC when the company moves to Burbank next year. When news of his retirement hit this week, an outpouring of support from creators, retailers, and fans alike was immediate. Word to you, Bob. You will definitely be missed. And until next time, true believers, remember to pre-order your comics. Most notably, Brass Sun from Rebellion Comics. We cannot get away from these British comics, man. Look at us. All of a sudden, we're in. Remember to pre-order it because your retailer just might kiss you on the mouth for it. This is the Two-Headed Nerd signing off, kiddies. have left the bell tower. The victims have been left